Good morning. morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and being with us this morning on this beautiful, well, it's becoming beautiful. It's getting more beautiful as we go. Father's Day, uh, and we are glad it started off a little wet, but I think it's going to be a nice day before the day's over with, and I hope that you uh, have, will have a wonderful day enjoying all that. Wesley, thank you so much for leading us this morning in Will's absence. We're so glad uh, to have him, and uh, he truly is a blessing to, to all of us. I always love it because he has always got a smile on his face, and he's always got some sort of little joke that he's going to tell me, and uh, he just brightens my day, and I'm grateful for you, brother. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of my church family as well. Uh, today marks my 11th anniversary being the pastor on, on June the 20th, as a matter of fact, 11 years ago, I preached my first sermon here as your pastor. Um, oh, thank you. There were, there were three of you that were really excited about that. And the others. <laughs> I do appreciate that so much. Um, you, it, I can't, I can't, really can't explain to you just what a great blessing it has been in my life to be uh, your pastor here at Ivy Creek. You have, uh, you have, you've loved me. You've loved my family. You have laughed with us. You've cried with us. You have accepted us in to be part of your family. Many of you have come to be part of this church family in those 11 years. And so I'm all the, the only pastor that you've ever known here at Ivy Creek, but all of you have embraced me and my family is a part of yours. And all I can say to you in response to that is thank you very, very much. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I can think of no other place that I would rather be. I can think of no other place that I would rather serve the Lord and to serve his people than right here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And so it is truly a blessing. And I'm so grateful uh, for the honor that you bestow upon me week after week after week of coming and allowing me to, to be your under shepherd in this place. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I look forward to many, many more years serving in that role, I, I pray the Lord willing. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Luke, chapter 15. On this Father's Day, I want us to read and to think about what is perhaps the most popular and certainly maybe the best known parable uh, that Jesus told, and it is the parable of the prodigal son. This is certainly well-known to all of us. Uh, anyone who's ever heard one of Jesus' parables probably knows the the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we looked at recently, and also this one. Uh, but I want you to know that this parable of the prodigal son is about more than just the son. It's a story that reveals the heart of the father as well. It's an enduring story that continues to speak to each of us today with, with timeless truths that I think all of us would do well to consider and to heed. In fact, as the title today's sermon suggests, I, I truly believe that this is a story that will take our breath away when we truly consider it the way that Jesus intended it for it to be heard. So without further ado, let's read this story, the story of the prodigal son together. We'll begin down in verse 11 and work our way through verse 24. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. 
And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather in this place with our Bibles open in our laps and free from the tyranny and the oppression that exists in other places where we can boldly proclaim the truth of your word. I pray that we would be faithful listening, hearing, for your spirit to speak to us. I pray that you would help us to push out all the other distractions of the day and of the week and be able to focus on this text and upon you speaking to us through it. And then I pray that you would bring conviction into our lives through your Holy Spirit's work, that you would conform us in the image of your Son. That is your desire, and I I pray that it will be our desire and that our hearts would be open to you to do that exact thing in us. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin to consider this parable that's before us that I just read for you, um, I think it's important for us to remember that though we read this story according to what Luke has written to us and for us, Jesus was telling the story. It was, it was a story that he told, and, and as he told it, he was surrounded by at least two different groups of people that were with him. He had one group of people surrounding him who were considered the tax collectors and the sinners. In fact, according to the very beginning verses of this chapter, we see that those tax collectors and sinners had gathered around Jesus because they wanted to hear him teach. And Jesus even sat down and ate with them. That's that's the first group that gathered around Jesus. There's a second group, though, that the first verses of Luke 15 alert us to. And and that second group was comprised of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, they were gathered around Jesus not for the same reason. They didn't gather around Jesus because really they were interested in what he was going to teach. They were gathered around Jesus because they were trying to catch him in some of his words. You see that throughout the Gospels. They gathered because they wanted to catch him and to try to dishonor him in some ways and cause ways to to force him to, to have to backtrack. They wanted to discredit his ministry. Not only that, but these scribes and Pharisees were people who really disliked and looked down upon the other group 
the tax collectors and sinners. They, they thought they were the scum of the earth and they really couldn't understand why they were there and, and they couldn't understand Jesus' interaction with such a group. In fact, they even shake their heads with this disapproval and they say there in those opening verses of Luke 15, this man, that is Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Now that's just a group of people you just like to go spend Friday evening with right there, isn't it? That's, that's the kind of folks you just want to hang out with, those scribes and Pharisees. Listen, let me say this about it. The reality is these were men who took their religion very seriously. Now that in and of itself is not a bad thing. The bad part was that they mistakenly took their religion and then they placed this emphasis on it. They believed that their standing before God was tied to their ability to keep the law. And their focus was on obedience to the rules. And their measurement of others was based upon the same thing, which is why they would never allow themselves to come in contact with, with those gross negligent sinners and tax collectors. You see, they could not fathom how, how you could come in contact with such like that when you truly took your, your practice of religion so seriously. And they really could not understand how Jesus could claim to be sent from heaven and be a man of God, yet cavort with such scum of the earth that he always seemed to attract. So it, it's really these two different diverse groups of people that Jesus is telling this parable that I just read for you. And, it, and this parable is partly a response to the criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it is partly an explanation of the reason that he welcomed sinners around him. And Jesus welcomed them who were considered outcasts. But it is wholly an appeal to all who listened to him to understand the loving and the compassionate and the forgiving nature of the Heavenly Father. Now, as Jesus, who undoubtedly as the perfect son of God, was also the perfect and best storyteller who ever lived, as he would have told this parable, particularly I believe that you can almost hear gasps come from the crowd. I think you can hear them sitting there, and, and as he began to get into this story and he told certain details, you can hear the people just, <gasps> they can't believe the details of the story. And it is at those points, at the point that those gasps would have erupted from the crowd, that's going to form our outline this morning and the, the, the various hooks that I want us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this text. And so the very first gasp comes straight away and it really comes as a result of this. It, it's Jesus' description of the son's disrespectful demand. The first gasp would have erupted because of the son's disrespectful demand. Now, in the introduction to his story, Jesus tells us that a man had two sons, and the youngest of those two sons came to his father and said, look, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, no doubt there was a collective gasp that erupted across this crowd at that demand. It was the most outrageous and insolent and grossly disrespectful ultimatum that the son could have given to his father. In fact, everything about that demand cut against the grain of, of, of Hebrew society's core values. It was as if the son said, Dad, I, I wish you were dead. 
I wish you were already gone and out of the picture so that I could have everything that was going to be mine then. I want it now. I want to be done with you. I want to be out of this family, and I just want to have everything that's coming to me. Now, such a demand was, was not the right of a son to make. In fact, to even suggest such a thing, so brazen, well, the son could have been written off as dead. The Mosaic law even allowed for such disrespect like that to be met with being stoned to death. At the very least, you would have expected the father to, to take his hand and slap his son right across the face in regard to what he had just demanded. But that's not what happened. In fact, what happened creates the second gasp that you see occur. In fact, that second gasp, I put it this way, it's the father's astonishing answer. The father's astonishing answer. Instead of slapping his son or even just denouncing his arrogance and his disrespect, according to verse 12, the father then acquiesced to what the son demanded. And it says that he divided to his two sons, his livelihood. In other words, the father gave the son exactly what the son asked for. And the crowd would have groaned at such news. To give that defiant young man what he asked for was unheard of. And it, and it would have been considered shameful. It would have been considered pathetically weak as a response. And at this point in Jesus' parable, both the father and the son would have been objects of shame and reproach by those who were listening in. But the story continues. Having been given all that he asked for, Jesus tells us that the son then gathered all of that together, which likely means that he took everything that was tangible that the father gave to him, and he went out and he liquidated it. He, he sold it on the open market for anything that he could get. He just wanted cash. He wanted the, the easiest thing to carry with him because he intended to leave town. He was not going to stay. So he didn't, he, he, it would be the equivalent of someone taking the valuables that were given to them, trans, given to them through, throughout generations and they just took them to the pawn shop and, and blew them out for pennies on the dollar just to have the liquidated funds. That's what the son did. And he, he wanted to be free from anything that bound him. And that brings us then to the next gasp because Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish crowd which makes the next tidbit of information even more gasp-worthy. And the third gasp is simply this. It's the son's dreadful destination. His dreadful destination. Jesus tells us that he journeyed to a far country. And by that, Jesus, Jesus means that he leaves the, the, the nation of Israel as a Jew who was, had been raised in that, in, in that environment it would have been completely against his Jewish roots and upbringing to leave that country and go live in the Gentile nation. In that day and time, it was unthinkable that such would occur. It was bad enough that the son had exposed his father to such humiliating disgrace by asking for his inheritance, then selling it off, but then to travel to a Gentile land to get as far away from his family and his father as he could. Such an action only sunk the sun even lower. You see, in the mind of the Jew, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, everything in Gentile culture was unclean. This son had now become a despicable figure. He was the epitome of, of evil and, and, and shame. 
Perhaps that boy had heard the tales of how great life was living in the big city. All of us have probably heard those tales at some point in our lives. and There's always been something that was ringing in the background telling us, hey, get your attention over here. There's, a, there's always a better spot to go to. There's always a better place to be. What we do know is that this boy had little knowledge of what life in the real world was actually going to be like in that far country. He had not considered all the many dangers that lurked there. Forethought was obviously not foremost in his mind. He was simply looking for pleasure. He was looking, he was looking quite honestly for just for fun and, and, and excitement. And listen, when that is foremost in your mind, prudent planning rarely is top priority. Consequently, it's not surprising that Jesus tells us what happens next. It says that the foolish son wasted his possessions with prodigal living. This is why he's called the prodigal son. The word wasted literally means to just scatter abroad indiscriminately. That's what the word means. Prodigal is a word that describes someone who is reckless and who is wasteful and who is, who is a lavish extravagance. It, it, it's used in that regard. And this boy, he, he scattered abroad his money that he was given as a result of him demanding his inheritance, and he blew it. He just wasted it on anything, on wine, women, and song. That's what he did. In fact, later, the older brother, who we didn't read about this morning, Lord willing, we will come back to his part of the story next week. But when we get to verse 30, the older brother looks at what the younger brother did and said he devoured his father's livelihood with harlots. That's an incredibly descriptive word. He, he didn't take time to spend it. He didn't plan out how he was going to use it. No, he devoured it. He just completely consumed it and wasted it all. Now, I'm sure that at some point that son did like most of us have done at some point in our lives when there's more month at the end of the money. And he goes to start trying to figure out exactly where all of his money went. He went to his little bag where he contained all of those coins and suddenly it wasn't as heavy as it had been. In fact, there was nothing left in it. He's looking for holes to see if it had been falling out like Solomon talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he realized that all of his money was gone and there he is. He's broke and he's busted and he's all alone. There's something that all of us should recognize right here. I want you to know sin never delivers what it promises. Never. And the pleasurable life that sinners think that they are pursuing eventually always turns out to be precisely the opposite. A hard road that inevitably leads to ruin and the ultimate literal dead end. There may be excitement on the front end as you chase some of those wild dreams that tend to come up in all of our lives, but I want you to know the end of that journey is always the same. Always. The sun slide is not yet complete, though. Things are about to go from bad to worse. Jesus tells us that lurking right around the corner after he had lost all of his money was a severe famine. We probably don't completely understand that in our world today because... 
We have the ability to store food away for long periods of time, but in a very agrarian society as these people were who lived basically off the land, when a famine came, everybody went to starving. This boy was not the exception to that. Food was, was scarce. He became hungry. In fact, seemingly overnight, this young man's life had become a nightmare. He was broke, he was starving, and he had sunk to his lowest. Well, not quite yet. Because according to verse 15, another gasp would have erupted from the crowd. The the fourth gasp we see there is the son's shameful situation. His shameful situation. He's destitute. He's hopeless. He's starving to death. His life is quickly going down the tubes, but he's still not quite ready to go home. He's still fighting for what he thinks he needs to do. So he says to himself, you know what I need to do? I need to get a job. I need to find some place that I can go to work because if I can find some place that I can go to work where I can earn some money, you know what? I'll work hard enough and I'll do enough to be able to put some away and I'll dig myself out of this hole that I found myself in. That's his mentality. He thought that he would be able to work himself out of the dilemma that he faced. So mistaken that he could fix his own problem, Jesus tells us that the son joined himself to a citizen of that far country, that Gentile land, and he took on the employment of becoming a pig herder. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I know what that's like. I've never slopped a hog in my life. I would imagine there's some of you in this room who know what that job is like. You've experienced it firsthand. My associate pastor, notwithstanding, he knows exactly what it was like to grow up on a farm and do that. I don't know what that's like. But I'm going to tell you something. Everything I've ever seen and heard about it doesn't make me want to go do it. (laughs) Here's what I can tell you about this good Jewish boy. What vestige of dignity that he might have had was now completely eroded. Those scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus was telling this parable to would have been completely horrified by this detail of the story. You see, pigs were an unclean animal. They were considered unclean by Jewish people. They were were considered spiritually defiling and grossly immoral. Nothing could have been more horrifying for a Jew than to find himself having to slop hogs. But I want you to know it wasn't much better for the Gentiles either. Even among them, feeding pigs was considered demeaning work. It was virtually the lowest possible chore in the whole hierarchy of labor. And this is why we know that. The son had come to a social standing in his life in which he was considered to be an outcast, not just by the Jews, but by the Gentiles as well. Jesus says, notice in verse 16, that although he was starving to death, no one gave him anything to eat. No one. Not the Jews, but also not the Gentiles. He was a complete, total social outcast. Now let me point out, that every detail that Jesus told in this parable further offended the sensitivities of the scribes and the Pharisees. With every detail, the sun sunk lower and lower and lower. In fact, by the time that Jesus got to this point in the tale, the prodigal son was, by their way of thinking, quite clearly an object worthy of total contempt. He was so utterly covered with reproach that he could have been considered completely beyond redemption. Now, you know how when you listen to a ball game on the radio, 
they'll come to that point where they say, now we're going to pause for station identification. Well, we're going to pause, not for station identification, but we're going to pause for personal identification. Because you see, Jesus told this story so that his listeners, so that you and I, might be able to identify ourselves in it. And let me say to you, the only person that we can identify ourselves with in this story is the prodigal son. You see, the prodigal son represents every sinner who has ever lived. When we sin, you know what we do? We show disdain and we show disrespect for God's fatherly love as well as his holy authority over our lives. Every time we sin, that is what we do. We deny his rightful place of honor and respect. Our sin is nothing less than an expression of hatred against God. And and really, if you think about it, it is tantamount to wishing that he were dead. I don't want your rule over my life. I don't want you telling me how I'm supposed to live. I don't want your authority dictating to me how I'm supposed to go about living my life. I want to do things my way according to my own rules in my own time. Give to me that which is mine and get out of my life. That really is what sin. Every time we engage in it, that's what it is. In fact, the prodigal son is not just a picture of the worst of sinners, he is a picture of every unredeemed sinner who, as Paul describes them in Ephesians 2, verse 12, is alienated from God and without hope in this world. In fact, that is where this son found himself. If you think about it, when you find yourself as a good Jewish boy in a pig field, empty and destitute and spiritually bankrupt and alone and no one willing to lend you a hand, that's where a good picture of what it means to be an unrepentant sinner. What I want you to know is that that's the ultimate picture of a sinner, and some of you know what that's like. Some of you probably have felt as if you have dropped to that lowest point in your life. You may not have been in a pig pen, per se, but you know what it's like to hit bottom. For others of you, you may not quite have reached those depths yet, But I'm reminded of a line that the Lord once used to communicate his truth to me when I was running from him and running from the ministry, as I have shared with you before, in the clearest words that have ever been spoken to me that were not audible. The Lord said to me, you ain't seen bad yet, but it's coming. I plead with you today, if you are running from the Lord, if you have left the Father's house and you are chasing something that's far away in a faraway country, I plead for you to recognize yourself in this parable. And I want you to understand that you are the prodigal. Every one of us in this room is the prodigal. It is not necessary that you sink to the lowest place. You do not have to drop to the bottom you will have to repent and return to the Lord. Personal identification time is over. Let's go back to the parable, see what happens next. Because evidently the son woke up one morning and he watched all those filthy hogs out there. 
wallowing around in the muck and the mire of their own creating. He watched as they fought one another hungrily and as they devoured the refuse that they were being fed. And he was starving to death, wishing that he could eat some of it himself. As he watched those pigs, it was as if he was watching a mirror of his own life. He came face to face with the image of his own life and sin. And and Jesus says in verse 17 that the son came to himself. Literally what that means is he, he came to the end of himself. He came to his senses. He woke up. He woke up to the reality because he came face to face with what he had become. And suddenly he began to think clearly. And, and, and his father, the man who he had some, so summarily rejected, the man who he had disrespected and dismissed from his life, the man who he had treated as if he were dead, suddenly the son remembered him. You know, hitting rock bottom has a way of doing that to us. Hitting rock... When you are chasing after something and you are running into the pits and you don't realize it, do you know what you lack? You lack good, solid vision. You lack the ability to see things the way that they truly are. I'm not saying that about anyone specific. I'm telling you my story. What I lacked was the ability to understand things from the true biblical perspective. I couldn't see things. It was only when I hit rock bottom. When you hit there, God's mercy begins to show up and His grace is in the bottom. You want to know why? Because when you hit rock bottom, suddenly you're given the vision that you lacked before. Suddenly you begin to see things from the proper perspective. Suddenly you begin to think that all the stuff that I was chasing after and the things that I wanted and things I thought I needed... Those things don't matter. I need the one thing that I rejected. I need Christ. I need a relationship with the Lord. I need to know that there is something that I can grab onto when there's nothing else to hold onto. Hitting rock bottom. Listen, if you've ever been there or if you are on your way now and you think that you may be there, instead of rejecting it and being mad at God, understand that that is God's grace and mercy that he lets you hit. That wall, he lets you hit rock bottom so that you can know for sure that when you hit that bottom, there is solid ground and it's him. And he will uphold you and you can return to him. Hitting rock bottom has a way of helping us see things clearly. It did for the son. The son knew that for him to have any possibility of acceptance with his father was that he had to own up to his responsibility and what he had done. He couldn't just deny it. He couldn't evade the responsibility of his sin. And so he began to think about what he was going to do. He says, you know what? I can go home. And I want you to know that's where repentance starts. Repentance starts, plain and simple, with an accurate assessment of your own condition. It means recognizing that because of sin, you and I are desperate in a desperate situation. And it means that you begin to realize that the only way that that desperate situation can be fixed is by returning to the one that you have rejected. That's how repentance begins. And I want you to know that's exactly what the son did. Notice what he says. He says, I, I'm going to think about what I'm going to say. When I get back, I'm going I'm to go back. And he says, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, in my mind's eye, I can just begin to hear him begin to practice that. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. I believe he practiced it. I think he reminded himself of it because he begins to think about this is what I've got to do. If I'm going to own up to my sin, I've got to own up to it. But it wasn't just enough to think that. He also had to begin to make the steps that took him back to the Father. And which is exactly what he did. Notice he didn't ask for any special privileges. He didn't make any demands. He fully and unconditionally relinquished all of his rights. He simply confessed his sin and he threw himself before his father's mercy. And he begged to be made the lowest of his servants. And then according to verse 20, he actually arose and went. His plans were not half-hearted. It was not enough for him to just simply say, I have sinned, and then to continue to wallow in despair while remaining in the far country. No, he needed to go to his father and make that confession directly to the one that he had wronged. He had tried to put as much distance between himself and his father as he could earlier. Now he was determined to shrink that distance and to go back to him and he'd go home. The question is, what would the father do? Well, that leads us to the fifth gasp of this this text, the fifth gasp is the father's astounding action in verse 20. Remember the ones that Jesus is confronting in this parable in Luke 15 are the scribes and the Pharisees, as we noted earlier. Based upon the information that Jesus has provided, their opinion of the prodigal was that he was utterly beyond redemption. He was an outcast, and there was no doubt that they expected the father to drop the hammer on his wayward son when he returned home telling him how much he had told them so. He to, I told you, you shouldn't have ever done this to begin with. But notice in Jesus' story, that's not what happened. Jesus tells us in verse 20 that when the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Can you imagine something more beautiful than that? I know you've heard this story a thousand times, but think about it for a second. How did the father ever see that son? How would the father have ever been able to see that boy coming back if he had not been out there every day looking for him? I can't ever come to this part without crying. Because in this story, I see myself. Of all the places that I had run, And all the distance that I had tried to put between me and the Father. And yet, there he was, waiting, watching. Notice it says that he not only was watching, that he had compassion. That word literally means that his stomach was just turning inside. It just it moved him to see his son. And then it says... That he ran. You know what good, respectable men in Jewish society didn't do? Run. He didn't run. It's not what a nobleman does. He walks with grace. He walks slowly among the people. He does not run. Running is for little boys. It's not for a grown man. And yet this father sees his son on that road coming back and he 
pulls up his robe and he runs to him. Moved with compassion, he runs to him. And then what does it say? He fell on his neck and kissed him. When my dad would preach this sermon when I was growing up, I always wondered, what does that mean? Fell on his neck and kissed him. It means that he grabbed him up and he buried his head into his son's neck and he kissed him. And that's a present active indicative. It means that he continued kissing him over and over and over and over and he didn't stop. And here's what I want you to think about. Where had that boy been? He'd been in a pigsty. He'd been in a pig pen. Can you imagine how he smelled? Can you imagine the stench that was on him? Now, even if the father was loving, he could have said, look, you go in there and you get yourself cleaned up, man. You find somebody that'll wash you, hose you off outside, do something, get yourself, put... Put some deodorant on, for goodness sake, and get something to make you, and then maybe I'll come talk to you. That's not what he did. He went to it just like he was. Listen, let me tell you something this morning. God the Father does not expect you to go get yourself all cleaned up and get yourself shined up and spick and span before you come back to him. What he expects from you and what is necessary for those prodigals like this boy and like this boy and like some of you is to stop your running. Realize that where you're going and where you have gone to is against and away from the Father's house and against his will but you have a loving heavenly father who is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness whose arms are wide open and he is looking and you, if you will come to him in repentance just as we have seen this morning, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging exactly where you have been and what you have done, you will find a loving heavenly father who will accept you and he will clean you up. He will clean you up. That brings us to the sixth gasp. I promise you I'll get you out of here sooner or later. Notice the last little point there. It's the son's remarkable restoration. He not only went out there and kissed him. You notice what next he says. He said, give this boy a robe. He's the hist of honor at this party we're fixing to have. That's what the robe was for. It was to demonstrate that this was the one who the party was fixing to be had. This was the, this was the reason. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. You know what that, that, that meant? He's got the authority of me. He, he, is my, he, he carries my signet ring on his hand. He has the authority. Not only that, put shoes on his feet. You know what servants didn't do? Remember the boy? Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he stopped him, and he said, no, put shoes on him. The servants went barefooted. This boy is going to wear sandals because he's my son. He gave him everything that demonstrated sonship. He restored him to the position that he had had. Now let me ask you, what has this boy done to deserve that? Nothing. He had not done one thing to warrant this forgiveness and this restoration. In fact, those, 
Those scribes and Pharisees would have listened to what this father did and they would have gasped because they couldn't believe that a boy could be restored after not being forced to do something to pay his own way. But I want you to know that is what makes this parable such a beautiful picture of God's love. You see, in the sun, you and I are forced to come face to face with the own depths of our own sin. We're forced to, forced to see a picture of just how bad that we actually are. But the beauty of this story for that prodigal and for every single one of us is that your life and my life too can end up with a robe of honor and a ring of authority and a sandals of sonship, a fattened calf, and a great celebration of joy at the heartfelt embrace of a loving father. And this is where, this is where it gets to. You see, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God has demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for prodigals just like you and me in our place. According to John 3, 16, God so loved prodigals like you and me that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish and suffer the just punishment that they deserve but have everlasting life. You see, like the prodigal here in this story, all who will come to themselves and turn to the Father and repent of their sins and place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And though you are lost, you may be found. And though you are dead spiritually, you may be made alive again. So that brings me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, and I know you didn't think I was ever going to get to it. One has stated it this way, it's a good thing to come face to face with the depth and the scope of our sin. It's a better thing, however, to come face to face with the grace of God. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. The astonishing grace of our Heavenly Father should take our breath away. And it should drive us to repentance and to rejoice in His extravagant love and forgiveness. There are some of you in this room that I have no doubt this morning you need to do exactly what this prodigal did. You need to come to the end of yourself. And you need to repent. And you need to return to the Father, acknowledging your sin and receiving the gift of grace that he offers to you. If that's you, I want you to know you need to stop making excuses for why you're not doing it. You need to stop running. And you need to know that there is a loving Heavenly Father whose arms are wide open and His grace is there for you. If your story is one that you're a prodigal and you've come to that place and you've returned home and you've been received by the Father, then you know what that means? That means that today ought to be a day of rejoicing. That means that our hearts ought to be glad I want you to know the tears that I've shed up here this morning are tears because I look back upon my life and know exactly where I've been. I know me better than, I know me better than y'all do. But I also want you to know they are tears of joy because I know where God has come and what he has done. I know from what he has saved me and I know the joy that he has given me because of his salvation. And so because that is the case, for prodigals like you and I, who have been saved and we have been returned and God has restored us, you know what we ought to do? We ought to sing at the very loudest of our lungs whenever we sing, He is a good, good Father. We ought to sing that at the top of our lungs. We ought to sing, It is well with my soul at the top of our lungs because it truly is well with our soul because of what Jesus has done.
And so those are the two responses to this message this morning. The question is going to be, are you going to identify yourself with those sinners who have every reason to rejoice this morning because God has done for you what you could not do for yourself? Or, or do you stand back as the scribes and the Pharisees and look down upon that joy because it doesn't meet up with the standard that you expect? If that's the case, come back next week, please. Please come back next week. But today, will you rejoice because of what Christ has done? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you because of all that you've done for us that we could never do. Thank you for the story of this prodigal son. It reminds us of our story. Thank you even more that it reminds us of the great love that you love us with, that we can't begin to explain and understand. It goes against everything that seems normal and right, and yet it is there on every page of Scripture that you're a God that loves us with this kind of love and that you will receive the the erring one who would come to you in faith and repentance. My prayer today is if there's one in this room that has never done that, that the day would be that day, that they would truly trust in you, repent of their sins, and find that forgiveness and that freedom that you offer. For the rest of us, that that is our testimony, then I pray, God, that today would be a day of rejoicing in our hearts, knowing that you're a God that loves us this way. Thank you so much for being the God that you are, and we praise you in Christ's name.